Okay. I, that, that throws me for a curve there, not having announcements. I don't know whether I can talk that long or not. Well, we've been going through this series on the minor prophets, and I think it should have been becoming very clear to us that the message that God is giving through these prophets is not just for ancient Israel, but it is for the church today. And it has to do not just with the church, but it also ultimately in a dual sense, has to do with the physical nations of Israel because the prophecies are going to come down on them just as they have been and are on the church. Now, to give you a brief summary, in Hosea, Joel, and Amos, we saw strong indictments against the ministry and against the membership as well, remembering that we have all slumbered and slept, including me, and we're all trying to wake up to spiritual awareness and draw near to God with our whole hearts. And that is essentially the message of Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and that the scattering and the problems that have occurred has been because of our true lack of spirituality. Now going on then to the book of Obadiah, we covered that one, I guess, two or three months ago now, showing that the brother of Jacob, Edom, would be a principal enemy all the way through history and that the troubles that have occurred within the church have not been without an Edomite presence, and that which is about to occur in the nation is not without an Edomite uh, involvement. So it's a pretty strong indictment against Jacob's brother, who would always have a perpetual hatred against his brother and always seek to gain the birthright back by destroying Jacob. And we have seen destruction unparalleled in the church in the last few years. And as I said then, I looked up some names, and Raider and Tkach are both very likely Edomite names. And there are also those Edomites who have crept in to the physical nation of Jacob and who are also working toward bringing the destruction of Jacob again. This would not be here if that were not so. And God put it in this context in order that minor prophets read as a book, chapter by chapter by chapter, building one upon the other. So he introduces a major enemy there, and we got a little reprieve from talking about our sins uh, that week. Then we went to the book of Jonah, a very strong warning here, and the context is of a threat from Assyria. Now, I think we've all, who have been in the church for any number of years, have always recognized that the Assyrian is the destroyer that God has appointed. Now, whether that is a specific German, or whether it depicts in type a much larger organization, which we see happening around us now in terms of a new world order, uh, it is going to have some of those peoples, I am sure, at the root of it. And if you look at some of the names of those who are in charge in Pasadena, Worldwide Church of God, you will also find not only Edomite names, but you will find some German names as well. So the parallels and the pattern that were established in ancient Israel and are coming upon us as prophecies in this end time uh, are the same. Now Jonah rebels against preaching sin and repentance to Assyria. Because he knew that Assyria was sinful, 
And if Assyria did not repent, they would be destroyed, and therefore God could not use Assyria to destroy Israel. Of course, if they remained repentant, God would not have used Assyria to destroy Israel. He would have found another destroyer. I mean, you know, he has death angels and all kinds of weapons at his behest to punish a people so if he so desires. But Assyria did not remain repentant and ultimately were used in the destruction of Israel and the taking into captivity of the peoples of Israel. So Jonah pitched a fit and went into rebellion against God, and it all worked out that way in the long run. Anyway, even after Jonah was forced to do what God said, when God said it, the way God wanted it done, he ran from it. And there is a great lesson there, I believe, for you and me that we need to do just what God says to do. It doesn't matter whether we like it, whether we don't like it, whether it seems good at the time or bad at the time, because it certainly seemed bad to Jonah. But God will have his way. He is sovereign and he is providential. There's no way of getting around it. But it is important to understand where the threat was coming from as we approach the book of Micah today because we are facing the same thing today that Israel was facing then. The threat was from Assyria. At that point, the threat was not so much from Babylon as it was from Assyria. And that's why you have the story about the Edomite first, then the Assyrian comes online, and they are temporarily repented, and I don't know whether that has anything to do with what might happen in this end time or not. If they're preached to, perhaps they would be for a short time repentant. But that would put the thing off, so I hope that's not the case. <laughs> Let's get on with it. But then, there again, God is sovereign. But we do face a threat from Assyria today. Now, the setting of Micah was in the days of Uzziah and Hezekiah, kings of Israel, Uzziah being one of the worst, Hezekiah being one of the best. And there is a certain amount of overlap, possibly, between Isaiah and Micah. They wrote at essentially the same time. The threat was the same from Assyria. Because God had said through the prophets that because of sin and degradation and deprivation, Israel would be destroyed and the Assyrian would do the dirty work. So that was the threat that was over their head. Isaiah quotes Micah several times, showing that they were bringing essentially the same message. Now the word Micah, and I'm going to read a little bit to you from Barnes' notes. Uh, this He has some good comments to make here in setting the stage for the book of Micah. But the name Micah means, who is like the Lord? Barnes says the prophet's name, like those of Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, Joel, Obadiah, was significant. But these people didn't have these names for nothing. So when he says, who is like the Lord, as the title for his prophecy, there's a question that is asked there. He says, in the days of Elijah, and that first Micaiah, and Micaiah and Micah being very similar in the same name, really, the strife between God and man, the true prophet and the false prophet, had been ended at the battle of Ramoth-Gilead. It ceased for a time, and in the reigns of Jehu and his successors, 
because in consequence of his partial obedience to God, or partial obedience, God by Elisha and Jonah promised them good. But the good and the repentance didn't last. And there is a big lesson there for us. We came out of worldwide, and we were somewhat chagrined, hurtful, uh, wounded, maimed, mistreated, abused, and we to some degree repented. But then so many, I feel, have gotten back into another organization, whatever it might be, and settled down in their own pew again and gone right back to sleep. Are not really, really growing and working at what we are supposed to be doing. And that is coming to full awareness, full awakeness, to be quickened spiritually. Now it says before Micah here in Barnes, he makes some good points here. I, I don't I just like to read because sometimes it lulls us to sleep and I just talked about waking up. But I will read a little bit to you. So it says, Who is a God like to you? Before him, that is before Micah, whatever disobedience there was to God's law in Judah, there was no systematic, organized opposition to his prophets. There is no token of it in Joel. From the times of Micah, it is never missing. That is an interesting comment. That there began to be organized opposition against any prophecy of God that had to do with the dire straits that God would put the church in. The prophets all wanted to say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, and preach smooth, easy things. And they had to one degree or another. But Isaiah makes the same comment that Micah does. And Barnes notes that there is organized opposition to the prophets from Micah on. It began to get in an area that people could not stand to hear about. So what do you do? You stone the prophets. That's what Christ said, that they had always done. So we find it in each prophet however brief the remains of some are, who prophesied directly to Judah, not in Isaiah only, but in Habakkuk and Zephaniah, which are books which are about to follow the book of Micah here. It deepened as it hastened toward its decision. People fought against the idea of society falling apart and going into captivity. The closer it got, the more they opposed that idea. Peace and safety. We're comfortable. We're comfortable the way we are. Don't send that. Denial sometimes gets stronger and stronger. The worse the problem is. Whether it be alcohol, drugs, or whatever. Or prophecy. Because it's something we don't want to hear. It is not going to be long before we do not have our comfortable jobs and our comfortable homes. They're going away. And Micah brings that message. It's scary. And they began to apparently <laughs> organize the opposition against Micah, whereas they hadn't before. People that griped and mumbled, mumbled uh, I'm trying to say mumbled and murmured at the same time, <laughs> and I can't do that. But they had not gotten together with a, an opposition that was organized. 
So the message gets stronger and the opposition gets greater as we get into this. Uh, the nearer God's judgments were at hand, the, the more obstinately the false prophets denied that they would come. The system of false prophecy, which rose to its height in the time of Jeremiah, which met and thwarted him at every step, and deceived those who wished to be deceived, was dawning in the time of Micah, Jeremiah coming later. But the strong opposition was beginning to come to Micah. False prophecies arose in Judah from the selfsame cause whence it had arisen in Israel. Because Judah's deepening corruption drew down the prophecies of God's displeasure, which it was popular to disbelieve. False prophecy was a gainful occupation. People love to come and hear that everything's going to be okay. Well, I'm here to tell you they're going to be okay, but they're going to get a lot worse first. The false prophets had men's wishes on their side. They had the people with them. My people love to have it so, Jeremiah 5.31, said God. They forbade Micah to prophesy, Micah 2.6. Prophesied peace, Micah 3.5. When God foretold evil, prophesied for gain, Micah 3.11. Hirelings, and proclaimed war in the name of God, see Micah 3.5, against those who fed them not. Micah was called at such a time. A time when Israel was going into denial. And there are many in the church today who will deny that the church is in trouble. They will think that I am in the right organization and because I'm here everything is going to be okay and all these others are in trouble because they're Laodiceans. It's a normal cop-out. We want to be okay, but we're not, brethren. And God thunders that to us. But each and every one of us had best wake up. And it is not a popular message, I'll guarantee you. We want peace and safety. We would love to be told, because we're in this or that group, we're okay, and one day a call will come and we'll all go to a place of safety and everything will be fine. Well, I hope before this day is over we explode that myth because it's not going to happen that way. I hope I'm wrong. <laughs> I hope I'm dead wrong. Because it would be so nice to get a call and say you're to go such and such and jump on such and such an airplane or in such and such a tornado and you'll be taken where I want you to be. That would be easy. I don't think God's people have had it that easy in the past. Why should we be any different? All right, the threat is from Assyria, and we will find when we get into the book of, I, of uh, Micah here that it says, when the Assyrian comes into your land. This is the setting of the book. That's why the threat is from Assyria. Now, I want to remind you, if you maybe you've heard, and maybe you have not, Charles uh, Whitaker's sermonettes on the fall of Israel. I have not heard the third one. Uh, they played it today in Denver. At least I think they did. But we had heard the first two there. And Charles made it very clear that the fall of Israel was a phased thing. The warnings came and troubles came, but it didn't all fall at once. Some people were warned, some saw the trouble coming and fled to uh, Europe and Asia, so that most of Israel was not even there when the fall of Samaria came. 
And it was quite some time later when Judah fell. So this happened over a period of 40 to 75 years, as Charles explained as, as a matter of history. And the pattern is right here for the church today. We are falling in a phased form. Now, it may not take 75 years. I don't think it will. But we've already been at it for 13, haven't we? So it's taking a while. We got warnings from Herbert Armstrong. We didn't wake up. And God began to scatter us. How did it occur? You had betrayal from within, from the leadership, and scattering that occurred. And then we're going to see, before we're done here, that we are also going to start receiving persecution from the outside. First from the inside to scatter, secondly from the outside, and we'll get to the reasons and so on for that a little later on. But the same thing, I believe, is beginning to happen in our country as a nation, that the pattern of what has occurred in the church is now about to begin and already is working behind the scenes in the nation. And we're going to get caught in the pinch. Because I believe we are being betrayed by our leaders, that we will be scattered by our leaders, physically as a nation, and then persecution and destruction from outside when the Assyrian comes into the land. Now we did not recognize, at least not fully, what had happened after Herbert Armstrong died for some time. It took a while to develop so that they began to show their true colors. And that is taking some time in this nation. You see, those who have destroyed in World War I and World War II before realize they made a big mistake. And that is not to get rid of the United States first. I don't believe that they're going to repeat that mistake. They recognize that America has to go. And I believe that there are things working in this country that are not fully seen, but more and more people are beginning to realize that we are being sold out and betrayed from within. The pattern was in ancient Israel. The pattern is in the church, which we've already seen and lived, and are still living to this day. And it is developing in the nation for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. I believe the Assyrian is already in the land. The threat is powerful. There are bases, for all I've read and heard, in New Mexico of the German Luftwaffe. There is a Chinese presence apparently in San Diego as a military base. There are black helicopters and airplanes, I don't care what you say, flying all over the place. I've seen them all over the country personally. And I don't have delusions. I've seen these on bright sunlight days, not dark nights. I've seen them flying over Charlotte, both planes and helicopters. I've seen the war drills in Charlotte. We have people right now who've been watching them come up the beach and behind their house in California. These things are real. I don't believe every report I hear on the internet or the spotlight or wherever else it might come from. But I do know the pattern from the Bible. And therefore, I think I can speak with authority in saying these things are happening now because that is the pattern that God has established. So I don't know which 
specific reports to believe of this type of thing. But I do know that we're going to be betrayed and sold out because that's just sort of the, that's the pattern God has laid out here. Now this is explained both in Micah and the book of Isaiah. I want to go back to Isaiah before we specifically get into Micah here. The first few chapters of Isaiah where he pronounces this prophecy against Judah and Jerusalem. So it's to Judah, which to me is the splits off of worldwide. I believe worldwide represents Israel, as I gave a sermon on some time back, and I think it is becoming clearer and clearer that that is the case. That Israel was represented by worldwide. They went into captivity back into Babylon and Egypt first. And now, because of lack of full repentance, treacherous sister Judah is also beginning to weaken and go back more and more into sin. And I hear reports here and there that uh, this group or that group is now tolerating Trinity and they're tra- tolerating the 15th Passover. And on and on and on it goes as we begin to slip away from the faith once delivered. And therefore, Judah will suffer the same defeat the worldwide has faced. The church will be torn down. It becomes very clear. Isaiah talks about it here in verse 9 of chapter 1. Except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah. And he talks about the daughter of Zion in verse 8. Is left as a cottage and a vineyard, as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. So not much left. God is going to reserve a remnant out of the church. And it's scary to think that all these churches are coming down, but that's exactly what he says in Isaiah 5 that we have too many spiritual houses and a vineyard that has grown wild grapes and they have to be knocked down and destroyed. Then he goes on, and the threat is from Assyria in chapter 7 and chapter 8. This will parallel, we'll see, with what Micah has to talk about because the threat is very real from Assyria today just like it was then. And chapter 7 and 8, I will not take time to go through. I've done it before and Charles just went through it in his uh, series of three sermonettes. Uh, he, he brought it down, apparently, from what he said in number two to the church today, and I will be curious to see how well that fits with what I have to say today, not having heard it. But I'm looking forward to hearing it. And he tells us in chapter 8, not to be afraid of the conspiracy, the confederacy. Now, it, it, it almost blows me away, but there are still a few around today who do not believe there is a conspiracy going on to destroy Jacob. And yet God thundered it from the days of Isaac, Jacob, and Esau as individuals that it would occur. And the book of Obadiah says that Edom will try to destroy Jacob. And on and on it goes. Now the threat from Assyria was very real here, and he said there is a confederacy, a conspiracy to destroy Jacob. But he says, don't fear it. Now I'm paraphrasing and summarizing. Don't fear it, fear me. Now, from the one extreme, or the one ditch, of not believing there is any such thing, in spite of very clear statements from God, then you have in the other ditch those who spend much of their time studying the conspiracy, wasting time, just like it wasted watching a sitcom, perhaps. We know it's there. We only need to read enough of it 
hear enough of it to understand it's happening. But if it becomes our focus, and we think about it, talk about it, fear it, to the point that it becomes our focus, then our focus is not on God and we're fearing the conspiracy. We're not fearing God. And we're very likely to get caught up in it because that is our focus. So God warns us very clearly here to be careful, to be sure that our fear and our focus is on God the Father and Jesus Christ, not on the trouble that is coming. And if we accomplish the repentance and the zeal and the fire and the first love that he instructs us to get back to, then we don't have to worry about this. If we're praying, we'd be accounted worthy to escape what is coming upon this country. So the tie-in with Isaiah and Micah is very, very close. Assyria was the monarchy of the world when these prophecies were written. And the message of Isaiah and Micah, basically, if you want to put it in a nutshell, was deliverance being promised upon the condition of repentance. That's the message. God will deliver us from our sins and from the destruction if we repent. And we might also tie Amos 4 through 6 in here in showing that, that the problems in the church and in the nation are a phased thing. Because as I pointed out, and it was new information to me, I hadn't quite seen it that way before when we went through the book of Amos. It says, I gave you famine, blasting, mildew, uh, and so on, partially. And two or three would go from this city to that city looking for the truth. And it would be rare, but they could find it. And that's exactly where we've been, isn't it? Looking here, here a little, there a little, trying to find. And it's very difficult now to find the kind of truth and focus and excitement about God and his work that we need so desperately. But there in Amos, he says, I'm going to pour it on. I, I sent you this and still you didn't respond. And I think that is exactly where we are right now, brethren. We have not responded fully enough. We may have responded some, but we still don't have the fire that God wants. So he said, I will now send utter destruction, total famine, Amos 8.11. And I believe that's what's coming next, that the church is going to be knocked flat. Now, let's go to Matthew 24. Because I feel that the scriptures very clearly explode the idea that we go from our current condition, our current situation in the church, to a place of safety without further trouble. And we've quoted Matthew 24, verse 2, a lot in the last few years. Jesus said to them, See you not all these things? Truly I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. He says in the end of chapter 23, verse 38, Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. So God is going to send deliverance to the desolate house. And we'll see that when we get to Haggai and Zechariah. But the New Testament conforms perfectly to the Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew 24 cannot be left out. So he says the church is going to be knocked flat, speaking of the temple, and 
I might not have fully understood, comprehended, or believed this a few years ago, although I had read it many years ago and believed that the church was going to get knocked down. I just didn't quite grasp how. But boy, it's becoming apparent today, isn't it? It's piece by piece. The mortar is knocked out and the stones fall. Now let's understand, and this is not going to be comfortable. I hope I don't get get to organized opposition. <laughs> But much what Isaiah and Micah said and the opposition that came to this is automatic. I don't like to hear what is going to happen to this nation and to this church. But it's all in here. As he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. This isn't to the world. This is to his disciples saying, Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Be careful. Now that reminds me, to one degree or another, of those prophecies back there where they say, Speak smooth and easy things. To deceive us into thinking everything is all right. When all the prophets say it is not all right. For many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you be not troubled. Now that's, that is the message of Isaiah 8 again. Don't fear the conspiracy. Fear me. Don't be troubled. We see wars and rumors of wars right now all over the earth. It's rife with them. And one going on that the United States is involved in right in the backyard of the beast, I think, at the moment. And how will we get out of there without getting burned? We won't discuss that anymore at this point, but we're in there. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in different places. And we hear reports from all over the world of such things. War is going on in Africa and the Congo and various other countries there. Constantly. Famines. Man-induced in some cases. Because the greedy pigs who are in charge take it all and don't give it to the people. But there's wars, there's famines, there are earthquakes, and they're happening increasingly. All these are the beginning of sorrows. We see what's happening in Kosovo. We hear from church members in Kosovo. And this is only the beginning of trouble, brethren. Now it's going to get personal. He's been talking about what's going on in the world here, and deception too, which affects us or can affect us, and there's been a lot of deception in the church. All these are just the beginning of sorrows. Then, now, we should be getting pretty close to then, now, because we're seeing all these things increasingly all over the world. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. Now, he wasn't talking to James, John, Peter, them as individuals, in this end time context. Now he did tell them that they would die pretty horribly and they all with the exception of John did. So it was a personal message as well but remember the whole context here is the end of the age, the end of the world, not the end of the disciples or the apostles. It's the end of the world. So it's talking not about James, Peter and John here, it's talking about you and me. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. 
Now, does it sound so far like we're just going to be whisked away? This ties in very closely with the book of Micah, which we've not gotten into yet, when the Assyrian comes into our land. And you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. The church of God, incredible as it may seem, scattered as it is now, uh, small, ineffectual, weak as it is, is going to be hated of all nations. The church is going to become very, very prominent. I do not know what is going to cause this. But I have the word of the living God that it is going to happen. And we'll see a little more about it as we go. And then shall many, not a few, many be offended. Now there have been quite a few offended. There are quite a few who are offended at each other now. There are quite a few who are fighting among themselves now in the church. But this is in the context of international hatred. It's what this is in. Not in the mess that we ourselves have created. This is international. When the church has this kind of prominence, in other words, what I'm saying is this is yet ahead of us, then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Now I received on the internet the other day one of these, excuse me while I get a drink, one of these memos that said that uh, Kosovo is a setup for the Russians sending nuclear attack on us before the end of April. It warned people to get out of Seattle, San Diego, I forget where all, several cities. And that we were going to have a nuclear attack this month. I'll tell you what, I don't believe that one. <laughs> Excuse me. I don't believe that one because I think there's a lot that has to happen before then. And that what is occurring here in the book of Matthew, the 24, has not yet occurred. <laughs> we have not reached international prominence. We have not been hated. We have not been killed. Let me give you a clue. We haven't talked about place safety yet, have we? We haven't gotten there yet. Herbert Armstrong always said Matthew 24 was a sequential chapter. A sequential prophecy. One thing happening after the other. Of course, once things start happening, they, one does not stop and another starts. They just pile on top of each other. But he said the order is there, and I believe him to be correct. That at some point this is going to heat up, and we're going to be hated and come into prominence for whatever reason. And iniquity will abound, and the love of many will wax cold. And we thought a lot of it already had, and a lot of it has. But apparently it's going to get a lot worse. That's why we can't teach, preach peace and safety now. Because it's going to get a lot worse. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Not get seven-eighths there and give up, but endure to the very end of all this. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. 
Now to me, if this is sequential, it sounds like there's going to be persecution and martyrdom and hatred and a great falling away before the gospel is preached. I do not believe Herbert Armstrong fulfilled Matthew 24, 14. He fulfilled Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go to all nations, make disciples, call many. And through Herbert Armstrong, many people were called. And out of that many, few are now being chosen as we are sifted and sorted and pushed and pulled and chided to repent. The two witnesses will preach the gospel around the world with a great confrontation against the world. They will be hated universally, internationally, individually, and wholeheartedly. And they will go nose to nose, and we'll see that in Micah. They'll go nose to nose with this world. But they will not be alone. Have you ever noticed Acts 2? Notice Acts 2. Here is when God first gave His Spirit to the New Church, the New Testament Church. <clears throat> Verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Not just two, but quite a few, apparently. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. This has not happened yet, and the persecution has not happened yet. Now, it wasn't necessary for the disciples to see signs and wonders. An evil and adulterous generation seeks signs. Why did God make such a great and vivid display here? When 120 apparently were already gathered on Pentecost, they were already obedient, they were already there to keep the Pentecost the way Christ wanted them to keep it. They carried there until then, as he had instructed. But what happened when the signs and wonders began to occur there that made Peter think this was the end of the age? It was for the world. It was for the outside. Several thousand were converted as a result of what happened that day. So it was not a sign to those who already believed. It was a sign to the unbelievers. So if God is going to do great signs and wonders through the church, just as he did in Egypt, just as he did in Acts 2, it is for those outside, not for us. We already believe, don't we? To one degree or another, we do. I don't believe our belief is great enough yet. If we believed the way we need to believe, our lives would change. And I'm not saying that they aren't. Our lives are, because we do have a level of belief. But when our belief becomes stronger, our changes come quicker. And perhaps when some of these things happen, our belief will become stronger, but it does appear from what we've already read in Matthew 24 that some will turn exactly the other direction. That's the scary part. Some will turn the other direction. Some will believe more, and some will believe less. Now let's see that in Daniel 11. 
because this is talking about now, it's talking about when the Assyrian is about to come into our land, <coughs> because that's the context back here. Uh, I won't go back to chapters 9, 10, and 11 and build up to this. Uh, you can go back and review it if you want. But it's talking about a conspiracy in verse 27. And these people will get together and speak lies at one table. Or yet the end shall be at the time appointed. And it's talking about this one who has great riches and will be against the holy covenant, verse 28. There's where I want to pick the context up. That at some point, the world and I'm talking about on an international scale, as we saw in Matthew 24, is going to turn against the Holy Covenant. And we are the ones who have the Holy Covenant with God. At the time appointed, he shall return and come toward the south, but he shall not be as the former or as the latter. And he will have, in the verse 30, indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. There are people forsaking it today in Pasadena by the thousands and around the world as they follow that. And Pasadena is already selling the Big Sandy campus a few miles from where I'm standing right now. That direction. I, I haven't lived here in a while. But they're already selling it to the Catholics. There's already a connection. The connection is going to get stronger and firmer. They will have intelligence within that forsake the Holy Covenant. God says it. I don't need all the details. It's going to happen. And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice. This is speaking of the true believers. Those who have not forsaken the covenant. And they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. It says he'll stand in the temple of God, 2 Thessalonians 2. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But, and here's what I wanted to get to, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That ties with Acts 2. Those who believe and do not deny and do not become offended and will not begin to think, well, God isn't with us. He was supposed to take us to safety. And here we are, facing the world. Some will do exploits. And they that understand, verse 33, among the people shall instruct many. Yet they, even those who understand and who teach truth, they shall be helped, oh, uh, excuse me, they shall fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by spoil many days. I think that quite a few in God's church today who have still remained and haven't forsaken the covenant still believe that we're sort of going to be spirited out of this. But these scriptures don't seem to indicate that. Now when, when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. That kind of exploits does not need to be done in a place of safety, does it? 
I mean, what's the purpose? If you've been accounted worthy because of repentance and works and serving God and His people, what do you need miracles there for? I mean, beyond healing and so on, since probably the dentist and the doctor and a lot of people aren't there that people look to today. Yes, you'll need the benefits of God, but you won't need fire called from heaven in a place of safety to, to teach the believers that they ought to believe. It's a sign to the world. Therefore, it needs to happen before they go. Now, isn't that what happened in Egypt? Before they ever left, signs and wonders were performed before the Egyptians. Their magicians were made to look like fools. And they were fools. So it was a sign to the Egyptians. At the same time, it gave the Israelites strength as well to see that God could deliver. So there was benefit both ways. But these things, in my mind, according to these scriptures, the way I'm looking at them at least, seem to indicate that a lot of these things have to happen first. I'll pause while he turns the tape over here. <clears throat> okay. Now I lost my train of thought. They say train of thought. Mine's usually a caboose anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but where was I headed here? Um, let's go back to Matthew 24. Because it's Matthew 24:14 is a passive statement of fact. Not a command to go preach the gospel. It says it's going to be done. And I think Revelation 11 and the two witnesses show how it will be done. And it says, When you shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, which we just read, stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand, then is the time to flee. To flee very, very quickly. And not even go back in your house. And to pray that it not be in bad weather or on the Sabbath and a woe is pronounced to those who have children or are nursing children having little children at that time now I don't know when this is going to happen so I don't know when we ought to stop the baby production but a woe from God is a woe in other words it will be perilous difficult and we had better think about it And if those days are not shortened, there would be no one saved alive. So these things are coming upon us. Let's go back to Revelation 6. I think this is where I was headed when I lost my thought there a moment ago. Back to Revelation 6. Because Revelation 6, Matthew 24, and Daniel 11 tie in very closely together. We've recognized that connection many years in the past. But I think sometimes this horrible part, we kind of like to skip over. And we like to just think, we're, you know, we're going to be taken out and everything will be okay. But let's consider here in Revelation 6 and verse 9. <clears throat> when he had opened the fifth seal, and we're talking about the fifth seal right there in Matthew 24, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice. Now this is using a metaphor here. They, the dead know nothing, so the dead can't say anything, but their blood cries out from the ground. That's what he's talking about. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? 
And white robes were given to every one of them, and it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season. Now that again is metaphorical or symbolic. Uh, their white robes are ready for them because they've already been adjudged, qualified, read Hebrews 11. A lot of people have already been judged qualified, and Paul was saying that he and the New Testament church that he was preaching to would also meet that qualification. Right there in chapter 11, verse 39 and 40. So their white robes are sitting there waiting. And it was said to them that they should rest yet for a little season. Still stay dead. Until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. We just read in Matthew 24 that some of us are going to be killed. God is not going to spirit us out before trouble starts. That's why I don't believe that they're going to bomb this nation, a nuclear attack, this month. Because the church has not yet come into prominence. Great miracles have not done. Exploits have not occurred. Persecution from the outside has not come. The church has not been torn down stone upon stone completely yet. So this has to happen first. That does not mean that things are not going to continue to deteriorate around us and deteriorate in the church. These things have to happen. I mean, once the bombs fall, once the abomination is set up and the bombs fall, the church will either be in safety or be in captivity. So these things have to occur before that happens. So we may have more months or even, I hate to say it, we might even have a few more years for this to develop. Now, I'm not precluding the possibility that it could happen very rapidly. I mean, you can make some off-the-wall comment about uh, being betrayed from within in this nation and have the FBI on your step the next day. So I'm on thin ice here, I guess. And it's 80 degrees out in Big Sandy. <clears throat> but I'm just telling you the pattern is here. And the one way or another, God has got to bring these things to pass because he said that's the way it's going to happen. So before we're taken out... There has to be betrayal and hurt and death and martyrdom. Who do we think we are anyway to sit like a stuffed shirt and say, God is going to take me out? I mean, Isaiah got cut in half apparently. The disciples got, the apostles got hung upside down and put on stakes. Um, there's a whole long list in Hebrews 11 of all the things that happened to God's prophets and preachers and teachers and people. Why do we think we get off scot-free, brethren? The scriptures tell us we are not. That all of those people have to rest in their graves until we die as they die. Not all of us. Some of us. But I have to take it personal because I don't know which is which. It could be you. It could be me. And some will betray and be offended and hate. And I hope that's not you or me. Maybe it is mostly those who have already forsaken the covenant, but as pressure comes, you find out. And God finds out. Remember what John was saying about Abraham? Now I know! And God has to know about you and me. So we will be put under this kind of pressure. And we will either betray and hate 
or we will know our God and do exploits. It seems that a choice has to be made there. And our true level of spirituality, no matter how much we might bluster, and in our ego and vanity and self-righteousness think we're okay, our real spiritual self is going to be revealed under pressure. And God will either know or he'll don't know. (laughs) I mean, he will know one way or the other where we are, who we are, which way we react. Well, some of us are going to die. It's written, and it will happen. Now let's go to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. I'm still setting the stage for the book of Micah. It doesn't look like we're going to get into Micah, but we need to understand that the threat from Assyria is the same as the threat was in ancient Israel. So when we do get into the book of Micah, this is what it's talking about, and we we feel the threat, I think, over our heads now. Matthew 16, 1-4. The Pharisees came with the Sadducees. The Pharisees also, with the Sadducees, came, and tempting, desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Uh, and then he said, "When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather, for the sky is red and lowering. Oh, you hypocrites! You can discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times." A wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign, and there shall no sign be given for the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. And we have the sign of Jonah right there in the order just before we get to the book of Micah. Not just three days, but the three days are very much a part of the story, because Christ would be dead three days and he used that to prove it. But the whole story there is very, very important. I think what I did here, I was trying to work my way back into that, but I wrote some scripture down wrong. Um, Because I wanted verse 32 and 33, and it's not there. So where was I headed? Now, let's let's skip that. I, I was going to make a point, but I lost the scripture, and that's my fault. I'm sorry. Let's go to Matthew 10. Because here's one I think that we have misunderstood before. And we need to understand it in its context. We have used (coughs) Matthew 10 to show that we are to flee from city to city when trouble comes upon the church at the end. Let's see what the context says. He called his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits, to cast them out, to heal all manner of sickness, all manner of disease, and he names the apostles, and he starts to give instruction to them as a ministry, as a commission. Verse 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be you therefore wise as as serpents, and harmless as doves. But beware of men. For they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. 
But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaks in heaven. The brother shall deliver up the brother to death, the father of the child, the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. So he brings it from their time clear down to our time, doesn't he? Before the end comes. And he says some of the same things that he says there in Matthew 24. But when they persecute you in this city, flee you into another, for truly I say to you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. Now let's understand the context here, and that is that he is speaking to the ministry for a 2,000 year period of time. That they are to go to all the cities of Israel, and they are to preach and teach there but that they will be persecuted over all that whole period of time. And he says, if they persecute you, they give you trouble in one city, go on to the next, and you won't cover all Israel before I come back. So he says, this is something that is to go on for 2,000 years. Now Paul and Peter and some of those experienced some of those problems. Paul had to be let down out of the city with a basket and flee for his life. Uh, many times they would go from one city to the next because of persecutions and trouble and non-acceptance of their message. So they were to go and preach where the people were, that is, in the cities. And if the people did not accept and believe their message, then forget that one and move on to the next. And at some times, the, the unbelief was so strong that they were physically in danger. Paul was beat several times, left to be dead. And Stephen was stoned. And on and on it goes. And it's happened throughout the Middle Ages and apparently will happen even in this end. So it culminates here. But before the end comes, the cities of Israel will be destroyed. They'll be taken captive. So this does not mean that the church as a whole or the church itself, the people necessarily need to flee from city to city to save their hides when they're persecuted. This is talking to the ministry who is to go and preach there. And when the church is taken to a place of safety, the two witnesses are left behind and they go from city to city to city, probably. Through Israel as long as it lasts, and then to probably the Gentiles, just as it was to the Jew first, then to the Gentiles. Because the whole world has to be confronted and made as a plane before Zerubbabel. They cannot be touched, they cannot be harmed. But if they're persecuted, they go on with a message to the next city. And they won't have time to go all over the world before the end comes and they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem. So this is not a matter of the church running from Philadelphia to Chicago to New York to London to Paris to try to find safety. This is the ministry preaching the word of God and being persecuted for it and having to move on. So I don't, I don't think that the picture that some may have had in their mind as the church is going to be boogieing from town to town here to try to save their lives is necessarily the factor. 
because that is not the context we're dealing with. Now, that doesn't mean, perhaps, that there will not be a time when the betrayal of the offense comes that we might not have to go from one place to another. That may very well happen. But I don't think that is the major context that he's talking about here. But God is going to find out who is spiritually weak and who is spiritually powerful. And he's going to add gifts and power and ability to do miracles to a lot of people, it appears. Those who are faithful and strong and those who are weak are going to be found out. Well, I started early today, and this looks like a natural place for me to wrap this up before I get right into the book of Micah, but I wanted to lay this background ahead of time of what and where we are. That we are probably in the fifth seal. We are seeing wars and rumors of wars. We are seeing famine and pestilence. We're seeing attacks, one nation against another nation, all over the world, and threats of attacks. So we are very close to the end of this in terms of 6,000 years or 2,000 years of history. And the church is quickly coming apart till not one stone is left on top of another. And then persecution, once the scattering is done from the inside, persecution is going to come from the outside, and the threat of Assyria is looming just in front of us, as Isaiah 7 and 8 point out, that there is a conspiracy against Israel and against Jacob that is going to bring us down. And that is where we will enter the book of Micah on my next sermon, with this threat hanging over our heads. And we can take some lessons from ancient Israel, who saw the threat, and the prophets came and told them that Assyria was going to destroy them, that Babylon was going to destroy them in the various increments of them going into captivity. But they didn't believe enough to turn to God enough. And over a period of time, little by little, they went into captivity and they were destroyed. And we're facing the exact same danger, brethren, if we do not hear and heed. God is giving us space to repent. It's not like he just came in and gave us one warning one day and the next day, boom, we were all in captivity and dead. But over a period of time here, we've had time to wake ourselves up, shake ourselves, and realize that God's prophecies are going to happen. They will not fail. And we will either repent and be delivered, or we will go on into this captivity. And it is a phased thing. We've been going through one phase of it in the church. And it is, it is going to intensify. I think I can say that very confidently because that's what the scriptures just clearly to me say. It's going to get a lot worse. And our response right now is very, very critical. Because we need to either be strong enough to handle martyrdom or converted enough if not martyred, to be accounted worthy to escape all these things that are coming. Otherwise, when the heat is on, the yellow streak and the cowardice and the non-believing is going to show and will betray one another and have each other killed. That's 
what we're facing. He says, if you're faithful in little, you will be faithful in much. And it's these little things every day that slip by us so easily that we are not doing. But when the big time of test and trial comes, we may not be strong enough if we haven't been doing these little things day in and day out. So our lives right now are very critical because we're coming to the fork in the road when God truly puts the pressure on. And if we have our spiritual house in order, we'll be strong and do exploit. And being strong enough to be smarter is an exploit. That's not an easy one. But it could serve as a great strengthening for others who realize they might have to face the same thing. Because if they see you strong and solid and willing to die for your God and what you believe, then they will take strength and courage in what you have done, just as we take strength and courage in what Isaiah and James and John and Peter and all the others did. You say, why do you include John? Well, he didn't die, but apparently got boiling oil. That took some strength and courage, too. So we'll stop there. I've gone over a couple of times recently, so I'll try to make amends and repent of that and stop a little early this time. So that'll be the end of the transmission today.